0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900-CHML.
1: It's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Only three days until Christmas and Santa's on his way. I hope he's got snow tires on, and the reindeer are not from Vancouver. Here's Scott Thompson. Hey, hey,
2: hey, hey, hey. Don't be upsetting the reindeer in Vancouver. Yeah, there you go. Get a little of this on you. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. The gang's all here. And uh, once again, on the board, uh, Will Weber back in action and playing his uh, late buddy, uh, Nick Mailer, and his version of Joy to the World. Uh, you might remember uh, we played a little drummer boy of his a uh, little earlier on in the week. Uh, one more laugh, we got another good one in as well. Uh, and I don't know, like I said yesterday, uh, you know, we often ask everybody uh, what are the songs top hour. What do you want to hear? Christmas. We'll start at the twelve days of Christmas, but. I don't know. Uh, as much as I love what Nick is doing or has done, sorry, I, I you know, the Tennessee Ernie Ford and, and describing the Christmas dinner. And too bad the late uh, Nick Mailer wasn't with us because I know if we challenged him, he would take on Tennessee Ernie Fords and just jazz it up a little bit. And wouldn't that have been fun? All right. Obviously, the big story is uh, the incoming storm. Uh, We're supposed to see rain starting late this afternoon, uh, early into this evening, and uh, that's going to continue all night. And then, unfortunately, as uh, Friday arrives, so does plummeting temperatures. And again, nobody's really sure what's going to happen depending upon where you are on the lake, because, of course, the temperatures are sitting right right around the zero mark. Um, But that rain, what everybody's concerned about is a flash freeze and then turns to ice and then eventually uh, snow on the way as well with some windy conditions going to make uh, heading into the holidays, uh, pretty treacherous. And as a result of that, man, travel woes across the country. We heard it uh, heard of it uh, uh, last day or so uh, coming from uh, Vancouver, and slowly that storm is making its way eastward, and we will be experiencing that uh, as we get into the weekend. And again, tomorrow is the concern with the rain and a flash freeze, uh, making roads really, really uh, slippery before the actual snow uh, does arrive. So mindful of that, I'm sure you are. We've been talking about it for an awfully long time, and uh, again, uh, as people are starting to travel, um, uh, it, it probably couldn't have happened at a worse time. But that being said, uh, lots of planning in advance, and hopefully uh, you'll be safe and sound getting to where you need to be. All right, uh, the other uh, situation going on, obviously we talked about this yesterday, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky met with uh, President Joe Biden yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden, and and talked about uh, uh, the missile system, the Patriot missile system that uh, the U.S. has promised, and of course uh, the first uh, the first uh, meeting of of these two together, and for Zelensky, anyone outside of his country, and then shows up in his army greens at uh, the White House—an incredible image and incredible speech last night or yesterday afternoon. We want they replayed it again last night. Sorry, it was last night um, uh, through the evening on various news outlets. Uh, so a lot of Americans, no doubt. saw Saw, uh, the U.S. President, uh, the U.S. Uh, sorry, uh, Ukrainian President, and uh, addressing the nation and 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 what he had to say last night—pretty captivating stuff. And uh, again, as you can expect, that uh, the Russian reaction uh, to this is that they're probably not going to uh, help the situation in Russia. That's what they say. And once again, um, the. Uh, The Russia, the Kremlin, the Kremlin is talking about uh, nuclear weapons, uh, which is always scary. But here's the Associated Press, uh, Ben Thomas, on the Russian reaction uh, to this missile system coming from the U.S. and going to the Ukraine.
3: Russia has said the delivery of a Patriot missile battery to Ukraine would be considered a provocative step and that the advanced surface-to-air system would be a legitimate military target, along with any crews accompanying it. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov calls it an aggravation of the conflict that will not bode well for Ukraine. Speaking to top military brass, President Vladimir Putin said Moscow will use lessons learned in the conflict to strengthen its forces, a special emphasis going to its nuclear capability, which he described as the main guarantee of Russia's sovereignty. Meantime, the defense minister is calling for increasing troop levels by at least 500,000. I'm Ben Thomas.
2: Uh, uh, There you go. Any surprise as soon as Putin starts feeling the pressure he uh, again starts playing the nuclear card. We'll see where that ends up. All right, uh, big show coming up. Boxing Day coming early they say because apparently uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, not as quite as big as retailers would have thought. Uh, They've got extra stock on hand and they're trying to unload that between now and Christmas. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, we've talked at length about uh, musicians selling their catalog. Usually it's the old guys but justin bieber is uh nearing completion of a deal to sell his catalog they're talking about 200 million for that and uh this guy's still a teenager isn't he huh oh no maybe not not yet all right Uh, not yet no 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 all right uh, so yeah I mean for a younger uh, entertainer to be doing that kind of surprising we'll talk about that coming up a little later on also uh, as we head into the holidays out the other end is the new year in 2023 and common a lot of people uh, decide they're going to take one of those polar bear plunges is it the best thing to do for your health uh, we'll talk about um, what you should prepare for and uh, and, and, and um, you know just in case uh, we'll get you prepared for doing that polar dip or maybe even ask yourself the question whether you should be doing this at all. Alright, those discussions coming up. Uh, Boxing Day um, they say has begun early. Well, doesn't it always? But I guess this year it's even more so with inflation and the prices uh, and such. Uh, we talked to Bruce Winder uh, earlier on in regard to Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Um, maybe not the results that retailers were looking for. Find themselves in situations where they can offer uh discounts prior to the holiday let's bring in bruce winder retail analyst author retail before during and after COVID 19 is with us now bruce thanks for the time i hope you're well yeah i'm doing well scott how you doing i'm doing good thanks so much so we talked during black friday and cyber monday was this the success that uh the retailers had hoped for how does how did this year compare to last
4: yeah i think it was a little bit off the mark i mean it wasn't brutal but it wasn't a record-setting uh, event either you know it was okay at best and it varied a lot, you know. But I think that retailers were hoping for a bit more, just because you know most people were talking about consumers really waiting and cherry picking deals, and uh, it just seemed to be just a little bit lukewarm.
2: Now, why do you think this is? Do you think that it's inflation? People just concerned about uh, spending even more so this year than in past years, or are they just become immune to this stuff? They've learned how to play.
4: I, I think it's really just the consumer um, is not in a position where. Uh, they want as much product as they have in previous years. There's just too many headwinds. You know, everything from from inflation to job loss in the tech sector, interest rates going up, geopolitical issues. Um, You know, there's just so many things against people. Uh, Debt has gone up now. Consumer debt is at an all-time high. So there's too many headwinds here. And consumers have started looking at making gifts and thrifting gifts and just thinking the box a bit in terms of how they spend.
2: So obviously the last two years, certainly three years, whatever, however far back you want to go, uh, weren't the norm because we were locked up. We were in the midst of a global pandemic. So how can you compare what we're seeing so far to the last couple of years and then even that before a pandemic? How, how are we shaping up?
4: Yeah, it's kind of an odd comparison, but it, because I mean, you know, inflation is going to mirror things too. Cause even if you buy the same amount of product this year, you know, the prices are up, call it seven, eight percent. Right. So it's a bit of an apples to orange comparison. But you know what? It, it Things are much better than they were, say, you know, in 2020. That's for sure. And then this time last year, it was a bit tougher because we were right in the middle of Omicron around now. And there was some inventory issues in terms of scarcity. Right. So, you know, everyone was hoping that this would be sort of the first full year of back to normal. And I guess it is to some degree. But you know, there's there's just so many headwinds now that maybe, you know, we didn't think about last year that are hitting us now.
2: Uh, you brought up uh, an interesting point, and we remember remember this from the last year or so. Uh, obviously, with supply chain issues, there was chatter of support uh, of sorry, rather supply lack of supply coming in and such. Uh, and even prior to this uh, holiday season retail uh, rush, there was still chatter that you know there could be supply chain issues. Buy early, that sort of thing. Did that end up being a big issue, or did, as we're seeing, is is price and inflation a bigger issue this time?
4: Yeah, I think the price and inflation is a bigger issue having said that there there were supply, or there are supply chain issues this fall too. So there were still a lot of sort of issues as it relates to getting product from China and much better than last year but still some some big issues. Um, but overall retailers had more inventory so you know they felt they were in a pretty good position. But I just think the consumer sentiment part was just is just too much to overcome at this point.
2: So here we are, we're down to crunch time. There's only a couple of days left. Are there bargains to be found right now for those that have waited? What are the shoppers, last minute shoppers? uh, What can they expect?
4: Yeah, there's some really good bargains out there. Now, having said that, they're off sort of a higher price this year, higher regular price than previous years. But if you look around, you'll see a lot of retailers starting earlier with their boxing day. And it's really boxing week now, right? But you're starting to see save stories up to 70% off, up to 80% off. Those are much deeper. Than they were say last year when inventory was scarce so there are some good bargains out there and don't be afraid to buy online too you don't have to line up you know like we used to anymore those days are sort of still there but you know more people are buying online now so Hop, hop online and you can find some good deals as well. Uh,
2: obviously, we know uh, January, February slow time for retailers and, and hospitality as people sort of rest and, and then get, get back into it, I guess, for Valentine's Day. But what does January mean for pricing uh, Whether uh, at the retail level? Are we going to see prices go up in the new year? Yeah,
4: you might see some prices go up. I mean, you know, there's a forecast out there for food to go up another 7 or 8% uh, next year. Um, But, yeah, you'll see, you know, it all depends on the situation. If retailers have a lot of inventory, they're going to mark it down. They're going to do firm markdowns to try to blow it out. Uh, Some of the stuff from the fall is going to be packed up and put away. You know, so it all depends on how, if the weather, the goods will sell year-round or whether they're seasonal. But you'll probably see some pretty good deals continue on into January because, to your point, there's not a lot of shopping going on there. Maybe fitness equipment, maybe storage and Mm. some other things. But other than that, it's not a great time for retail. There's a lot of returns. So retailers will probably try to create some events just to drive people in the store and do something.
2: Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author. Retail before, during, and after COVID-19. Boxing Day Day sales beginning early as uh, those uh, waiting for the last bit to rush out uh, may actually get some benefit. Bruce, thanks for the time. Be well. Great holiday. Happy holidays to you.
0: Yeah, you too, Scott. Happy holiday. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: We've talked a lot about, especially with Alan Cross, in regard to uh, artists selling their rights. And, and usually it's older artists. So a bit surprising to hear that Justin Bieber is working on a deal to do exactly the same thing. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music and with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
5: Oh, you're welcome. Yes. uh, Festivus time. I'm preparing for the airing of the grievances.
2: boy, Festivus time. You got to like it. Okay, so uh, I'm kind of surprised at this. We've talked about this in the past and it's, you know, it's the uh, Springsteens. It's Bob Dylan's whatever. Uh, Why an artist so young as Justin Bieber now completing a deal like this?
5: Because maybe he can. Maybe he sees the writing on the wall. And that this is the time to to strike. Let's if the, if the money's there, let's take it. Now, I the the deal has not gone through yet. It's with Merck Mercuriatis and uh, Hypnosis. Uh, Merck is a Canadian. He used to work for Universal Music Canada. I used to run into him every once in a while uh, when he was uh, as a, as a promo rep back in the day. Um, so he's got a soft spot for for things Canadian. I would imagine. Uh, the deal is not done. The deal is being advanced. And it looks like something is going to happen, but we don't know for sure. Now, I'm going to bet in, in, license, in, in absence of uh, some of the other facts here, I'm going to bet that what they're going to do is give him money for everything that he has done up until now. And he will be free to keep money from anything he does in the future. Hmm. So there will be an end date to the um, to the music that that hypnosis will purchase. And then he'll f- be free to continue to make money touring and merchandise and anything else that he wants to do, including any new music that he makes going forward.
2: So uh, that was my next question. Is this just back catalog or would he still have control over things going forward? And how does that compare to the other deals, whether it's a Springsteen or a Dylan? They Most of the other
5: deals are, are for catalogs. Um, what they want are the hit songs. Yeah, They want the songs that they can make money from um there are others the killers for example uh imagine dragons for another who have done very similar deals they'll say okay take everything that we've done up until now but we get to keep everything that we do from now on and that seems to be uh, amenable to everybody and you know it gives these bands and these artists like like Bieber they'll give him some you know working capital for the rest of his life he can do whatever he wants with that money he can um, he can go experimental he can disappear for a while. he can uh, get into activism and philanthropy. he can do whatever he wants. He's also married now so maybe there is some uh, some estate planning that that needs to be done um, and it could be for a tax reason too. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but in the US and he would be paying taxes in the US because he was uh, he's a resident alien at least. Um, when you get royalties on songs, you pay that is treated as if you are being paid a salary. Mm-hmm. So you are taxed at whatever maximum in his case, we've maximum tax rate. So probably somewhere for somebody like him, somewhere around 50%. However, if he takes all this money up front, that is under US tax law a capital gains. So he's only going to pay 20% tax. Mm. Now, when you're talking about A 30% difference in tax on $200 million. That's a lot of money. So I would imagine he had somebody saying, look at this offers here, take the money. Now you will have it in the bank to do with whatever you wish. You don't have to wait for it every six months and you don't have to pay 20% or 50% tax on it. Take it, uh, put it away, continue to work and just enjoy your life.
2: Uh, all valid points, including tax planning, estate planning, all of that. I mean, it could have been his accountants that said this is the best thing to do. Who knows? Um, but that being said, I'd be scared, and this is just total greed, Alan. I'd be scared that 10 years from now, it's like, wow, it's worth like 10 times that much. I sold too early, and I sold it for too uh, for too little. Um, or, or is that does that even come into play here? Scott,
5: we're talking about Justin Bieber. <laughs> um, he's, he is a pop star. And, and pop stars are, are, you know, pop music is, is of the moment. It's evanescent. It is yeah. uh, designed to be, um, you know, uh, consumed very quickly and discarded just as quickly. Uh, I You know, yes, it could happen. It, it really could happen if they find a way to unlock the value in these songs and to turn them into something bigger than they've already been. Yeah, that's that's the, the risk you take. But at the same time, you're getting 200 million dollars. How many yeah, people can yeah. even
6: contemplate
5: how much $200 million is, let alone even think about spending? I mean, you put that in the bank at 1% interest, yeah, and you're, you're living the high life for the rest of your days.
2: So is it right to assume or wrong to assume that maybe this music is the most valuable now? Maybe 10 years from now, he won't be as valuable. Like for the reasons, this is
5: what uh, the these 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 companies like uh, Hypnosis and Primary Wave and Concord Music and all the others that are buying up music. This is the risk they're taking. They believe that they can take intellectual property in this case, music, and uh, not only make their money back, but also make more money so they can pay off their uh, investors and turn a profit. So we'll see. It's um, it's an interesting. They, they must have approached him with some ideas about how they're going to do that. And I'm, I'm also going to, uh, you know, and you have to wonder, you know, is because we're dealing with pop music here and not something as timeless as, say, a Bob Dylan song or uh, a Bruce Springsteen song, if they, they said that, look it, um, let's be honest, this is pop music and we're going to have to work really hard to unlock and exploit it. So um, we're going to be... We want to be able to do whatever we need to do with these songs. So if a breakfast cereal comes along and wants to license a song for a TV commercial, you know what? Uh, We're going to do it, and you have nothing to say about it. That's a guess. I have no idea. Most of these other artists, when they do sell their catalogs, put in codicils and and clauses that say, listen, um, I get uh, first right of refusal or I get uh, a veto power over certain uses of this song going forward. Uh, you can't imagine bob dylan allowing his song to be used for a breakfast cereal so somebody somewhere said mm, okay uh you have to uh, we have to approve certain types of reuse of this music
2: so, obviously, as we said earlier, uh, mostly heritage acts that were doing this. Now we're seeing more and more younger acts. Is that the new trend? Are we going to see more and more? Yak- and when you re- think about it, Bieber's been around for a long time. He's not like he's a new guy anymore. Um, but that being said, are we going to see more and more of that era take this route? Uh, because then all of a sudden you're you're betting on whether the music stands the test of time.
5: Well, you are, but, you know, I've got a list here, a running list of all these acts that have sold their music. And uh, like I said, you know, Shakira has done it. Um, Who else have we got here on the list? We have um, David Guetta did it. Uh, Like I said, Imagine Dragons, The Killers. Um, uh, Bruno Mars has sold some of his music. Hmm. Um, I'll just keep going through the list here. Um, Justin Timberlake has sold a bunch of his music. Julian Casablancas of The Strokes has made a deal. Uh, Lady A, the uh, country band, Derek Whibley from Sum 41. He's kind of a, uh, a heritage guy now. Um, who else here? Iggy Azalea uh, just sold hers a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, it's being done. Um and again it gives these people working capital to do something going forward. Skrillex, uh Kaiser Chiefs, yeah. uh Chain Smokers, Tom DeLong of, of Blink one eighty two. So uh yeah, you know it's it's
2: you got hey, the money just- they're just getting their pension ahead of time when you think about well, it. Well, th- this
5: is what it is. I yeah, mean, this is yeah. they, the way they negotiate this is that they determine a multiple of what the songs will earn over X number of years. So two times, five times, 10 times, whatever it is. And that they sell on that number as the purchase price. So without doing, you know, they've done their due diligence. They've, they've been able to project out um, how much these songs can make. And they make an offer, and then there's some negotiations. And if the artist Mm. wants to go for it, there you go. Now it's not only Bieber because Bieber doesn't write his own songs exclusively. It's everybody else that's been associated. Yeah, get a piece of it. Yeah, can't. So um, somebody, you know, Bieber talks to his 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 crew, you know, his songwriting crew, his his studio crew, uh, you know, all that, and says, "Hey, somebody just dropped two hundred million dollars in front of us. What do you think?" And all the other guys go. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, there you go
2: Alan Cross with us, host of the Ongoing uh, the ongoing History of New Music Alan, as always, thanks so much for the time Have a great holiday
0: You too, we'll see you later When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson On Hamilton's News, Today's Talk 900 CXML
2: all right, uh, I, I know it's a little early to be talking about New Year's, since you know we're not really at Christmas yet. But that being said, we know it's coming, and with that, there are a group of very hardy people um, that that find the best thing for them to do to bring in a new year is for a polar bear plunge. Yes, drop, find yourself a body of water without ice on it, and uh, in and out you go, and that's how they bring in the new year. But Is that the safest thing to do or is it quite the opposite and refreshing and exhilarating? Let's bring in Lee Hill, research coordinator at McMaster University, postdoctoral fellow at McGill, coach swimming at Olympic and national levels in South Africa before coming to Canada and is part of the International Ice Swimming Association. And with us now, Lee, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Yes, hi, Scott. Yeah, thank you so much. uh, I'm doing well. Uh, You know, winter's on the way. You talked about having... uh, Uh, an open body of water with no ice. But, uh, you know, for the polar bear swimmers, sometimes we cut our own holes. Oh, oh,
2: man. All right. So, first of all, before we get into this, what is the International Ice Swimming Association?
1: Oh, this is a a great question. So, it's kind of this movement towards creating a competitive environment for swimmers who kind of would like to do something a little bit more extreme with their lives, i.e., assuming in water that's uh, between two and uh, minus two degrees celsius sort of like the olympics but uh, you do it in freezing cold water
2: oh man so obviously you're into this lee uh so is this a good idea or a bad idea
1: so i suppose like well we can come at it from the perspective that you know nothing that you do is without risk it is an extreme you know sort of activity and you know there are some risks associated with it, uh, but the research is kind of, I would say, scant at the moment. You know, it's very difficult to ask participants to put themselves at potential risk of hypothermia or uh, any sort of cardiac arrhythmias. Um, yeah, I would say it's it's not without risk.
2: All right. So give us some tips for those that are brave enough to do this, uh, who should be doing it, who shouldn't be doing it. uh, Some advice.
1: Yeah, sure. So the biggest part about uh, getting yourself ready to do ice swimming or any sort of polar bear dips is it's all in the preparation. You have to make sure that you have uh, sufficiently warm clothes, uh, warm beverage, you know, things after you've uh, decided to uh, strip off and, run into the cold water so acclimation is probably the your best friend and the way to prepare nice and easy you know get your your hands and feet in the water prepare for that cold shock get a little bit of cold water on the back of your neck kind of primes your body that there's a uh, some (laughs) a temperature shock (laughs) on the way
2: so uh so you don't just plunge right in you're better to kind of work your way in how long do you stay in once you're there
1: so you know, it's up to it's up to you and uh, how much pain you can take from uh, your your nerves freezing. Um, <laughs> for most part, the polar bear swimmers, it's jump in, get yourself submerged, and jump out. Um, but we kind of caution, you know, as you're as you're running into that water, that first minute is the most dangerous. So you know, take your time with going into the water. You know, don't run in, run out.
2: And who should not be doing this, Lee?
1: So I would I would caution anybody who has a, a history of uh, cardiac arrhythmias, maybe uh, cardiovascular issues, or there's a family history. the The cold water shock can uh, it increases your breath rate up to nearly a thousand. You know, you hyperventilate nearly a thousand times your your normal breathing rate. Your uh, your heart rate spikes. So there's some risks for uh, for those who have underlying heart conditions, certainly. <laughs>
2: All right. Lee Hill with his research coordinator, McMaster University, postdoctoral fellow at McGill, coached Olympic swimming and national levels in South Africa. A little a little a few tips for the polar bear plunge. Uh, Lee, uh, thanks so much for the time. Good luck.
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, and have a great day, everybody.
2: Have a great holiday. <laughs> All right, we've talked about this before. After nearly four months of trying to convince the Halton District School Board to implement a staff dress code, a group of uh, Oakville High School students' parents are threatening to take issues to court. In a six-page letter sent via their lawyer earlier this week, uh, they've given the board until Thursday to apply the same dress code requirements uh, that students are expected to adhere to, to this teacher. Uh, The letter is the most recent complaint sparked by a months-long controversy over a educator who wears oversized prosthetic breaths with protruding fake nipples to school. Uh, Where do we go from here? Let's bring in Rishu Bandu, a Bandu Law Professional Corporation and the lawyer of the parent group and is with us now. Rishi, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
3: Thanks very much. I hope you're doing well, too.
2: So uh, talk about this lawsuit from the parents and what they are trying to do here, what their issue is.
3: So fair fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll clarify, though, there isn't a lawsuit presently. Uh, and, and we haven't we haven't said that a lawsuit is coming imminently or anything like that. I know that that's how some of the headlines read, but but we're very much committed to dialogue and, and a constructive resolution here. Uh, although if, if we we can't get anywhere at some point in time, certainly uh, my clients and potentially other parents will will look at uh, some sort of judicial intervention to, to to get the results that they're looking for.
2: So again, explain the issue and the concerns here.
3: Yeah, fair enough. So, um, as you know, in September, uh, a teacher, Miss Kayla Lemieux, was 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 attending school in, in these really oversized uh, breasts with with these protruding nipples and 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 bike shorts, and and the parents at the school have been have been trying repeatedly to have their concerns addressed with this, but uh, they've they've just been met with silence. It's the view of the parents that um, what what the teacher is wearing is obscene, it's pornographic, it's inconsistent with the student dress code. Uh, and and it's it's really not an issue of gender identity or or expression. It, it seems to be, according to the parents, to be more of an issue of fetish expression. And that's not a human rights issue as far as we can see. Uh, and it's it's something that has to be enforced via via the student dress code.
2: Uh, again um, as you've expressed I think most of the concern here is the proper attire and what is that how, how why isn't the, do you think the board reacting because as you said and I, I have kids in high school or did um, if this was the students boy this would be a whole other discussion so why isn't the board reacting why is there two different rules here
3: You know, it's it's not clear to us because because the board isn't communicating. So we can we can only speculate. Um, And, you know, in in the the roundabout manner in which they've uh, addressed this, um, you know, to the parents and to the media, it appears to be that they're taking a position that this is this is protected activity under the Human Rights Code. In other words, the the teacher is expressing her gender. Uh, which she is certainly entitled to do, and, and because of that, they're not going to enforce uh, any sort of um, attire. I think that they're also saying that there isn't a teacher dress code uh, and that the student dress code doesn't apply to teachers, but but from our point of view, that that does not make any sense at all. Uh, the teachers are are, in fact, expected to communicate and monitor the dress code, effectively to enforce it so if if that's the case then they they have to be in compliance with with the student dress code
2: uh, i'm trying to be sensitive with this but allegedly this is a transgender issue here um how do you balance that with proper attire because to me these are two different issues
3: well again for from our perspective um it's not a gender expression issue it's 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 a it's a dress attire issue and look, we don't take any issue with the fact that that all persons in Ontario are entitled to express their gender in the workplace, including in a school environment. Right? There is no issue with that at all. I, I have a child at Oakville Trafalgar as well. I have no problem with my child being taught by a transgender gender person. I think I think it's the right thing that we need to do in our society. The problem is is that is that on its face, the appearance of this teacher. Violates the student dress code. It appears to be obscene. It appears to be pornographic, and and the the prosthetic nipples are showing through the teacher's shirt, and that is expressly prohibited by the student dress code.
2: Uh, as so, you said, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. So we just don't understand why they're not applying that student dress code to 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 the teachers.
2: Uh, it appears the board is concerned about their rights, but at what point do the rights of the rest of the kids supersede the rights of one individual?
3: Well, I think we need to figure out if if this person is even exercising a right under the under, under the human rights legislation, and and that's that's simply not apparent to us at all. And 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 look, the board has to make that decision. They are the employer in this case, and as and as parents. We are strangers to this employment relationship. We can't tell the board what to do with respect to this teacher. The only thing that we can do as parents is is voice our concerns and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, But the board isn't listening to that. And and that's part of our concern. If you look at the Education Act, the Education Act gives parents a voice through school council to express their views on any matter that relates to pupil achievement and the accountability of the educational system to parents. So we have concerns about this. We have questions about this. We wanna know why the student dress code isn't being applied, but the board continually says that this is not an issue for parents. It's an operational issue. It's a human resource issue. So effectively mind your own business. And, and our view is that that's not proper and lawful.
2: Uh, I've only got a short time left, a few seconds. Where do you think this is going?
3: I, I I remain hopeful that the board is going to communicate with us because I think we're 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 taking a a reasonable common sense approach on this and and it boils down to two things. Number one, acknowledge that the student dress code applies and the teachers have to comply with it. And secondly, cease and desist from censoring the parents and listen to us and listen to our concerns and and respond appropriately to them.
2: Rissy Bandu with us, Bandu Law Professional Corporation, the lawyer for the parent group in regard to uh, the Halton District School Board and a teacher in question there over their attire. Rissy, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be, uh, Be well.
3: Thank you. You too. I appreciate your time.
2: You're listening to the
0: Hamilton Today podcast from 900 Chml.
2: Different angle for COVID 19, which we haven't talked about in a lot uh, for in a while. Rather, um, obviously waning as the big issues are the flu and respiratory virus, which has been, of course, affecting young people and once again crippling our our health care system as we try to get through that. Uh, China, it's a completely different story as they uh, took the zero tolerance approach uh, and just locked everybody down. But they are having a very difficult time right now, so much that the World Health Organization is fearful, as China sees cases soar, that new variants can form. Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor at the University of Toronto, and he is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
6: Oh, my pleasure. Happy to chat.
2: So how do you explain, uh, doctor, that, that China is in the situation that it is? How did they get this wrong?
6: Yeah, I mean, listen, they, they took some very extreme measures to keep COVID out. We saw that play out over the last couple of years. Um, you know, not commenting on human rights or, or, or other issues like that, but mm-hmm. they were largely successful at keeping COVID at bay. Of course, we know how extreme those measures were, but they were able to keep COVID at bay for a period of time. And, you know, they were able to vaccinate some people in their in their country with vaccines that, you know, if, Based on some of the emerging data, they don't appear to be as good as the vaccines or as effective as the vaccines that that uh, we've had in other parts of that we've used in other parts of the world. And they just don't have the same degree of people within the country who have been infected and recovered from infection. Now, I'm not saying it's good to get infected. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we can't ignore that if you've been infected and recovered from infection, you have some degree of protection. When you combine that with vaccination, you have pretty decent community level protection. And, uh, and they just don't have that degree. And lastly, they, you know, when you look at vaccines and boosters in older populations that are more at risk of severe infection that need hospitalization, uh, they just don't have the same degree of uptake based on some of the emerging data. So as we're watching COVID sadly, really sadly, tear through uh, China, some of the imaging, that, the images that are coming out are, 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 are terrible to see. And we saw it happen again. We saw it in Hong Kong earlier, where they had an under-vaccinated population, especially older people. And for a period of time, Hong Kong had the highest rate of death related to COVID on the planet. So it's it's going to be some tough months ahead, unfortunately.
2: Uh, It's interesting that they can enforce lockdowns, but can't in vaccination. And again, that's a political issue. We don't even want to go there. But um, let me ask you this. How concerned are you? Because the rest of the world has moved on. We've been vaccinated. We've had it. We've built up immunity, what have you. Um, And again, the rest of the world has, has moved on. Are you concerned that because it's still flourishing there that we could see a variant that could come back and bite us?
6: I mean, yeah, no. On the one hand, yeah, there's now 1.4 billion more people on the planet that are potentially exposed and infected and reinfected, which means there's just more opportunities for the virus to to mutate. There's more opportunities for variants of concern to emerge. On the other hand, listen, we've we've been through this time and time again. We've seen the alpha variant from emerging in, in the U.K. We've seen the Delta variant emerging in India. We've seen the Omicron variant emerging in southern Africa. And, like, the vaccines continue to stand up to do a remarkable job protecting us against more severe manifestations of the virus, like hospitalizations and death. Yeah, yeah, they've lost some of their protective benefit from uh, protecting us against infection and onward transmission. But they still stand up strong against the severe manifestations of the virus, regardless of the variant, including several Omicron sublineages and variants. So, like, yeah, there there might be more people uh, sadly impacted by the virus. There might be more mutations occurring, but the vaccines have really held strong. So so okay.
2: so am I correct in saying, doctor, that um, uh, that these variants, although they they may spread or grow in places like China and such, they're still relatively mild. And with vaccination and what we've been through, we're in good shape
6: so far. I mean, listen, I, I think it's still fair to communicate uncertainty. We can't yeah. be overconfident in the, in the months and years that lie ahead. But we've seen variants emerge and sublineages of the omicron variant emerge and the vaccines continue to protect us against severe manifestations of the disease so uh that's that's a that's a very positive arrow pointing in the right direction
2: so how does china get out of this i mean again as we've said zero tolerance up till now so anybody had it the year locked up and immunity down as a result of all of this how do they move out of this at this stage of a pandemic
6: I don't know. I mean, look, we've seen this happen in other parts of the world where it just, you know, we saw this, for example, in well, we saw it in Wuhan at the very beginning. We saw it in Northern Italy. We saw it in New York City. We saw it in, um, you know, Iran. And it just, you know, this virus can just tear through non-immune populations. They could really double down their efforts on getting vaccines and booster vaccines in particular into more vulnerable and older populations. I think that would that would probably be the lowest hanging fruit, right? Those are the people who are more, most at risk to have severe illness that will require health care and hospitalization. Your health care system is already getting stretched based on some of the reports that we've heard, and that that's probably the most bang for your buck. Get boosters into the vulnerable population.
2: Uh, do you think China will have to go through a period of where they become more sick, for lack of a better phrase, uh, before things get better?
6: I don't... So. Obviously, nobody wants that, but yeah. based on what's happening, I don't see any other alternative. I mean, and, and again, like, we're not making this up as we go along. Like, we watched this happen as waves yeah. hit Canada and every, and every other country on the planet. Like, wow, it was, it was tough. I mean, we, remember spring of 2021? I mean, we truly ran out of ICU capacity in much of the country. I mean, we're in Ontario, we were shuttling people hundreds of kilometers away to ICU beds. We were just full. It was, it was the toughest. I'm telling you, that was, working in a hospital personally, and I know many mm-hmm. of my colleagues would say the same, that was the toughest time I've ever had during yeah. the pandemic. And then, and, then, and there's a lot, there's been a lot of tough times. So, I mean, I, I feel horrible. Obviously we'd wish no ill will on anyone. We are friends and neighbors all over the, all over the planet. But I think, you know, when we've seen how COVID has impacted, everyone on the planet, including Canada, it's pretty clear that China's got some tough days ahead.
2: Uh, Obviously, we all remember what it was like during the very early stages when we didn't know what this was, and we were restricted in locking down and such. But but obviously, China's been doing that for a, a long period of time. Is it now thought that zero tolerance, not the way to go?
6: Well, okay. So, you know, there's various measures to keep COVID at bay and mitigate the impact of COVID. Some people myself not included felt that the zero COVID policy was the right approach. I I personally don't agree with that. I thought there was a, a bit of a lighter touch approach that still involved some measures to keep the virus at bay, but not to the same extreme um, element that uh, that a zero COVID strategy entails. Because quite frankly, I think we knew from very early on, certainly in in 2020, that this was not a virus that you're going to Eliminate—that's a a technical term. You know, it's not eradicate; it's eliminate. And again, people might argue with me on this and debate with me on this, and that's fine. We're all entitled to our to our opinions and our own interpretation of the data. But it was pretty clear that this was not something that we were going to eliminate. And uh, more of a mitigation strategy would have probably been uh, better. But uh, again, I'm not here to tell any anyone or any country what to do. I think that that was, uh, you know, several of us in the medical and scientific communities of analysis of the data and it looks like that's probably the right approach
2: dr isaac bogosh with a staff physician general internal medicine infectious diseases associate professor university of toronto doctor as always thank you so much for the time and thank you for all you've done for us uh, over the, all of this time we greatly appreciate it and have a great
6: holiday season that's very kind. Thanks so much. And then you too. Have a wonderful holiday. If
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
1: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
2: You know, we all really, really, really should look more, in just as we should look more into health care, we should really look more into the green belt and what it is all about, how it works. I think it's a great idea. I think it's it was a great idea to, to reserve this land. But the problems that we are facing right now with the green belt are only going to intensify in the next twenty to forty years as the land between the green belt and, uh, and and city boundaries that hasn't been built up yet, as that fills up. What do we do then? So we really do have to have a conversation about this and what the heck the green belt is all about and what the objective is. Uh, let's bring in Mike Collins, William, CEO West End Home Builders Association, and with us now, Mike. Thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. No.
7: Good evening, Scott. I'm doing great. Thanks for
2: having so, me. So, I've been trying to find out about the white belt, which, from what I understand, is the area between the green belt and where development is now, or city boundaries or such. Um, the people who are uh, saying that they don't want the green belt touched or telling everybody that you know there's lots of land there that that needs to be developed. We got like you know 20 to 40 years there, um, but unfortunately, it's the same groups of people that don't want to build there either. So we don't want to build on the green belt, but now we don't want to build on the, on the white belt. So how do we, what's the solution here? How do we resolve this?
7: Well, a lot of people don't want to build anywhere. Uh, we've yeah. got problems with other people not wanting to build missing middle housing in existing neighborhoods. And, you know, often when there's a new tower or large scale intensification project planned, there, there's a lot of people pretty upset at community meetings saying that they don't want that in their neighborhood or their backyard. So I think, unfortunately, there's a little bit of a Venn diagram where a lot of the people uh, that don't want housing here also don't want it there.
2: Do people really know what the green belt is all about? Uh, For example, we hear there's 20 to 40 years of land available there to build before having to touch the green belt. But what happens when that gets full? I mean, and that's not that far away. Uh, This discussion is only going to intensify. Do we just start building on the other side, the far side of the green belt? What do we do then?
7: Well, it's it's happening a little bit already. So there's lots of different terms here. There's The, the White Belt it was essentially uh, an urban reserve. It was lands that were set aside back in 2006 when the previous Dalton McGuinty Provincial lo- Government, they created the Green Belt, uh, they created a growth plan, and the idea was that this White Belt uh, was this piece of land uh, between the existing urban area and the Green Belt that was designed to be a long-term urban reserve where every 10 years, the urban boundaries would be slightly expanded into it. And that's sort of the debate that we've had in Hamilton the last couple of years of um, utilizing and expanding the urban boundary, not into the green belt, but into that white belt area to accommodate the hundreds of thousands of people coming. And uh, you you mentioned about building on the other side of the green belt. I mean, that's been happening, especially uh, through the pandemic. And as we emerge from the pandemic, we're the fastest growing region in north america right now and there's a bit of this musical chairs effect where you know people that can't afford toronto or can't afford mississauga or richmond hill anymore they're they're leapfrogging out to sort of the next cities out to hamilton out to Barrie, out to oshawa and and we're seeing displacement in these communities and now some of the fastest growing areas in ontario are places like tilsonburg and shelburne and collingwood that are Hmm. Uh, far on the other side of the green belt. So this this Toronto housing crisis has spread throughout the GTA into Hamilton and now it's really stretching right across Southern Ontario.
2: So uh, where do you see a solution here? Obviously, government has stepped in and said you've got to take advantage of this land, but it's 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 it seems that nobody wants, like you said, to build anywhere. We've got a half a million immigrants coming in in the future, uh, in future years, which we need uh, for, for labor reasons, for employment reasons. We seem to be doing the same thing and ending up at the same place. Will something jerk this
7: loose? Ugh, I'm not going to sound terribly optimistic before Christmas, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but there's... There's a lot of friction right now in the planning process and we're growing at an incredible rate. The Canadian population across Canada is up 865,000 people year over year and 360,000 just in the last quarter alone. We're growing at more than double the pace that we were prior to the pandemic. Yet whenever we have these housing discussions of where we're going to put all of these people, there seems to be friction in the process. Um, And that planning has become hyper-political where it seems to be that the answer that a lot of people in different communities come up with or local politicians come up with is the answer is often no, which is why we've seen the province step in in such an aggressive way. And it's not just in Ontario, we are seeing other jurisdictions, BC and down in the US, California, where state governments and provincial governments are having to intervene in a very assertive way into local municipal politics to actually get housing built. And it's bizarre
2: because putting it off only makes it worse.
7: It it would be a tough thing to be a young person today. There was a report recently released by Generation Squeeze um, that articulated that the average full-time salary for young workers aged 25 to 34, they would have to save up 22 years of full-time work just to get a 20% down, down payment. So, you know, we've seen some stalling or easing off in home prices But as interest rates are going up, the affordability is actually getting worse for a young person just trying to start out and break into the market uh, because your monthly mortgage payments are going to be that much higher.
2: Mike Collins, Williams with us, CEO, West End Home Builders Association, talking about expanding and trying to build homes in a province where nobody wants to build. Mike, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck.
7: Thank you. Have a great holiday season. You too. You know, I mean,
2: do you keep doing the same thing? We just have more of the same. It's, It's only going to get worse. I don't get this.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has announced regulations for the ban on foreign homebuyers, regulations around, which come into effect uh, January 1. To talk about that and give us a little uh, bit more of a Greenbelt 101, Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University with us now. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. All right, let's first of all talk about the Canadian uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Many uh, saw in the last few years people coming in just buying houses, uh, flipping them, or keeping them vacant, renting, what have you, uh, using that as an investment. What will this regulation do? Will it slow that down?
8: No, not at all. And it's it's due to a principle called arithmetic. (laughs) Simple arithmetic. Let me explain. In Vancouver, foreign buyers is somewhere under, just over 1%. In Ontario, the most recent, the province of Ontario, largest province in Canada in terms of GDP and people, it's about 2%, 2.5%. Um, and for those who understand arithmetic, and I know all of your listeners do, um, if 2% are foreign buyers, that means 98% are domestic buyers. And so what the government is doing, and it's not, I'm not blaming CMHC, this was announced in the budget by the government, by Christy Freeland, and the prime minister um, to ban foreign buyers, and it's it's I mean it's demagoguery, Scott. It's saying all oh, those dirty rotten foreigners, you know, it's those damn foreigners coming in and <laughs> buying up all our houses, you know. And it is statistically fraudulent. The amount number of foreign buyers in Canada is infinitesimally tiny, very very small.
2: Is Pass- this more or- is the, is this more about domestic buyers flipping many homes?
8: no no it's not it's the same old that we've been talking about for three or four or five years i've been talking about it in ottawa the city of ottawa non-stop and testifying before council it is the deliberate social engineering by counselors in the big cities including your city of hamilton my city of ottawa the gta in vancouver and they deliberately have suppressed the approval process for the expansion of new suburban tracks and deliberately suppressed housing starts. That's why we are short. Scotiabank said it was 1.8 million. CMHC actually estimates it's pushing 3 million housing shortage uh, uh, in Canada. We are not building enough houses or apartments or condos. I'm not gonna quibble over whether it's a high rise or a low rise or attached or semi-detached or single-family home. We're not building enough relative to the growth of the population. So we have a very serious, significant shortage. And the social engineering is because there are counselors who have uh, convinced lots of people about this uh, urban sprawl, suburban sprawl. And this is the pejorative biased rebranding of what we forever and ever called population growth. Mm -hmm. Populations grow. Canada from the very beginning, because we've all, there's two countries in the world that have been very, very pro immigration from the very beginning and origins of the country. One's the U S the other's Canada. And we have brought in large numbers of immigrants from the very beginning. We continue to do so. The number just was increased to a half a million a year. Every two years, Canada is now bringing in one new city of Ottawa and dropping it into Canada. One million new people every two years and so we need a lot more houses and the and the councillors and the municipal planners have conjured up this idea of urban sprawl and you know the earth is on fire and and that we're all going to you know burn up or something um, uh, if we don't address the urban sprawl why it's so bogus scott and i want to get this out very quickly you know if anybody thinks and actually looks at emissions it's a function of your income the more money you make the more things you buy. You buy more stuff. You buy cars, you buy computers, you buy cottages, you buy motorboats, you take trips. Every last thing that we do as human beings, it uses fossil, or just, just about everything, uses oil, gas, or coal, or fossil fuels. And we emit GHG emissions. So the more you consume, the more you emit. So high-income people who live overwhelmingly, according to StatsCan data, live in the urban core, full disclosure, I live in the urban core in Ottawa and the Glebe, which is like the beaches in Toronto. And mm-hmm. these are very high-income neighborhoods, people sitting there with two and three cars out front. I don't, but most do. And, and, and they have very high consumption. And that's where, if you go and wanna calculate the earth, the GHG footprint, it's not poor people they don't have make very much money to consume stuff that uses oil and gas to produce the stuff called an airplane trip called you know whatever you're consuming. And so my point being that this was conjured up to and 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 this shortage has been socially engineered. And and so it's not because of those terrible rotten foreigners and Mm. this pejorative rebranding of immigrants which we desperately need in our country.
2: This problem is only going to get worse because from what I see the area you know below the green belt which is uh, you know then there's the, the white belt which is undeveloped land above the development area um you know people don't want you touching the green belt because they say there's lots of this area to build on but the same people that don't want you touching the green belt don't want you expanding the boundary and building on that land either uh what's going to happen in 20 30 40 years from now when that white belt area is full I mean, we've, like, people really don't know anything about the Greenbelt, but we've got to come up with a plan for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years for this.
8: You're absolutely right. And I don't want any of your listeners to think this is something unique to Hamilton. This exact, identical debate has been going on in Ottawa for the last five, seven, eight years. I've mm. testified several times before the Economic uh, Development Committee. On this very issue of the expansion of the urban boundary to bring land outside of the urban boundary of the city of Ottawa into the city, so that it can be then approved for uh, for development for housing, and so you get you, sh- I show up and I'm literally one in a hundred uh, in support, and all the NGOs show up, I mean the, the non-profits show up, and they just flood the uh, thing, and that's fine, it's free speech, they're they're entitled to and they tell us we're you know terrible things are going to happen the farmers are going to be expropriated and we're going to lose our agriculture and they imply or infer we're going to starve we're not going to have enough food because there's not going to be enough land i yeah. looked at agriculture canada statistics for the country and this myth that the small urban farm of uh, the small farm which I grew up on in the sixties outside of Ottawa in Eastern Ontario is producing the lion's share of food. This is propaganda. These farmers are good people. But the idea that they're producing the lion share is nonsense. First off, we import one third of all of our food. Secondly, the vast majority of our food is produced by so-called agricultural corporations. These are yeah. mega gigantic corporations that invest enormous amounts of money into automation, those gigantic one million dollar tractors. Their productivity is very, very high, and they are producing the food. What yeah. you're seeing in the outside of the city of Ottawa, Hamilton, Toronto, et cetera, you're getting what I call tourist agriculture, where yeah, the Harvard, people hobby the farms. Yeah, hobby farms. People from the city who have never seen the front end of a cow from the back end of a cow, don't know anything about cows or pigs or or any animals, wanna go out to the farm with their kids, understandably so, because it's very exotic to them, this idea of a farm, you know, where there's pigs and chickens and stuff. And so they take them out there and so look, bless the farmers for setting up these hobby farms to sell these city slickers, you know, um, uh, organic eggs at 6 or 7 or 8 dollars a, a, a dozen. Good for them. I mean it. Good for them. And uh, but the idea that they are the source of our agricultural output in the Loblaws and all the grocery stores in Canada is preposterous nonsense. Let me get my point across before I run out of time. We have to make a decision. All of us in Canada we can't suck and blow simultaneously. Mm. If we want to grow by a half a million a year, and maybe we don't, I do, but there's many that probably would disagree with me, we have to make choices. And that choice is we're going to have to approve more land in the rural for housing development. If we are going to continue to grow to 50 million population from 38, Mulroney was proposing going to 100 million by 2100, Look, if we continue to grow like we're doing, and I think it's a great thing, we're going to need more land. Suck it up, everybody. That's the price, call it progress, call it economic prosperity and development. I don't care what we call it. If we're going to grow the economy, if we're going to bring in a half a million people a year, we're going to have to build more homes. And we're going to have to build them in areas where we have not yet built homes, which is the edges, of all the big cities, Hamilton, Ottawa, Toronto, Vancouver. And that's just the reality that we face, even though we are in denial of that reality.
2: Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about green belts and housing. As always, Ian, thanks for the time, be well. My pleasure, Scott, thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
9: Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. I am uh, not stormed out yet. And, uh, you know, we're all good. Yeah, we're good. Well, I'll be, I'll be exhausted by the time it even gets here. Uh, if I write, if I, it gets here. Yeah, If it right. gets here. All now right. that the schools have canceled already, you watch. It'll blow north of us and we'll have nothing. <laughs> okay. Um, I saw this on your show
2: sheet for today, and uh, we're going to talk about this. Uh, this is a very fascinating topic, so I'm glad you're covering it. Canada mandating that by 2026, 20, 20% of all new cars must be electric, and then by 2030, it goes up again through the roof, which I just find absolutely hilarious. Uh, again, I'm all for electric vehicles, but if you tried or know anybody that has tried to purchase one, uh, the line forms to the right. So uh, you can mandate what you want by 2026 unless we're going to become the EV capital of Canada. Uh, you can't of the buy, world. Yeah. You can't buy what you can't get. Here's one more on it. Uh, on offering a discount or rebates to those that are buying electric vehicles, news flash, you do not discount discount something that is selling. You discount something that is not selling. You don't discount or offer a rebate for an electric car that everyone is lining up to buy. You're trying, you offer rebates to get them interested in this sort of thing. And it's just bizarre how we keep having this stupid conversation over and over and over again and if you challenge it, you're anti-EV which is not the case at
9: all. Well, That's, Okay, so uh, we're having someone on from a, an association around here that uh, that is very much in favor of of electric vehicles, and I have no objection to an electric vehicle, but I do have some questions like you. And one of them goes to the price because these things are not cheap. Right now, you could go out and buy a relatively inexpensive gas-consuming car if you wanted, a small... To, you know, car just to get you around. The, the, pretty much that I've seen anyway, all the electric vehicles are much more expensive. Yeah. So you're already telling people who don't have a lot of money, yeah, too bad for you. But the bigger one to me, the bigger issue that I'm looking at, and I'd love to have an answer for this, and I'm hoping we will next hour. Scott, when you have driven along any of our highways and you've pulled in, what do you call those? On um, route. on- route, all right? You pull into the en route and you fill up your tank and it takes five minutes to stop and to fill up your car, and that means that the car behind you that's waiting, because there's always seeming to be a line there, can get in within five minutes and fill up his or her car, and on we go. Now, for an electric vehicle, first of all, it's going to take hours, potentially, to charge one of these, to full charge, but B, when you drive into there, if now 20% of the cars on the road, or as you say, 40% in time, or 50% need a charge, where are all these charging stations? We're going to need thousands of charging stations, tens of thousands of charging stations all over the country. I don't see them. I, don't, I mean, there's a few here and there, but you're going to have to have these large parking lots with all these charging stations yeah. at all these places. And I, I not everyone, you could run out of power if you just charge at home. You can't just charge at home and then necessarily say, I can make my entire trip without ever filling up again. With, with So to me, the infrastructure is one of the huge questions here is we don't, to me, seem remotely prepared for anything like this. Now, maybe there's a massive construction job coming along, and over the next five, six years, the federal government is going to pay to put in 50,000 charging stations all over highways across Canada. But I haven't heard about it. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear
2: him coming up after the 6 o'clock news with more on all of this. Uh, great topic. Thanks for the time, Scott. Be well. Have a good show. See you, Scott.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the tax paying customer, to have the last word. Frank from Ancaster wrote in to say, just got back. in from a hectic day of shopping in time to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas of peace and joy.